Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. Luke 17, verses 1 to 10. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we have the ability to lift up our voices and worship you. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we thank you that what we hold in in our hands and what we are hearing preached today is not the the mere word of man, but it is the very word of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would use it in our lives. I pray that you would use it to challenge and convict and change us. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do a mighty work in your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have under consideration today uh, what is one of the most challenging uh, and yet most critical and foundational elements of the Christian life uh, before us in this passage, the matter of sin, how we handle it, uh, the danger that it poses not just to our own lives, but also to the lives of those around us, the danger of leading others into sin. And then what do we do when we're the ones who are sinned against? Sure, Christians are supposed to be people who are forgiving people, but what happens when you are sinned against repeatedly over and over again? What do we do then? Do we just ignore it? Do we sweep it under the rug? Do we try to get over it? Uh, Jesus packs an incredible amount 
of teaching that is just intensely practical, that has direct bearing on our everyday lives in just a few verses in this passage. He starts out by telling us that, that there's one thing that is bound to happen, that temptations to sin are sure to come. That is one thing you can count on. There's no getting around that fact. It is inevitable, and we all know this. We all know this by way of our own experience. Every day of our lives, we are tempted in one way or another, and this will be the case until we reach glory. We will face the daily onslaught of temptation that comes by way of the devil uh, who is called in the scriptures the tempter, uh, the, the youth have been studying Thomas Brooks's classic work, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, looking at all of the schemes that the devil uses to try to draw God's people into sin. James tells us that apart from the devil, we have our own built-in mechanism for temptation, if you will, uh, in our own lives, in the lusts of the flesh. He says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? By his own desire. He says that the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. These things are opposed to each other uh, to keep you from doing the things that you want the things that you want to do as a new creation in Christ. Well, Jesus touches on yet another source of temptation here that he especially wants to warn his disciples of in this context, and that is the witness of our lives to those around us. He says, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come we can prove to be a source of temptation to other people. And this is no small thing. I want you to think about this as being aligned with the devil in his purposes. When we become an avenue through which temptations to sin are presented to others, whether that's by way of our own ungodliness when our lives are out of step with the gospel, when we pretend that light can have fellowship with the darkness, uh, maybe it is just by our own spiritual negligence, by a lack of zeal when it comes to uh, the pursuit of godliness, when it comes to spiritual apathy, uh, by way of false teaching and error that comes out of our mouths when we know what the right thing to do is and we fail to do it, we can be a source of temptation. We can be a source of temptation to people around us. The word here is stumbling block. We can live in such a way so that we actually hinder people from faith in Jesus Christ. We can live in the kind of way where we uh, are sources of, tem of temptation that causes others or at least presents the opportunity for others to trip when it comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are examples of this in the scripture. You see a big one in 2 Samuel 12 and verse 14 in the life of David, who had, as you know, started off so well. He was a man after God's own heart. He was that man who said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He stood and he defended the Lord. His heart had been set holy on the Lord until it wasn't. And he became lax. He became lax in his attention to the things of God. His heart became divided. He broke faith with the Lord his God and he lay with a woman who wasn't his wife. You know the rest of the story. He lied and he connived and he uh, murdered Bathsheba's husband and God sent Nathan the prophet to deal with David. Well, Nathan comes and he tells David that it was on, on account of this deed that you have utterly scorned the Lord. It was because of David's waywardness and his backsliding that he brought public reproach to the Lord. How did that happen? Not just because of his own sin, but by giving occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme, to despise the Lord. Paul says the same thing was true of the Jews as a lot, as a whole, that because of their lawlessness, they caused the name of God to be blasphemed among the Gentiles. So, so imagine this, picture this in your minds. Unbelieving Gentiles looked at Jews who said, they, they, I know God, I love the God of Israel, and yet at the same time, they saw them living like the world, and they were consequently tempted to profane the name of God themselves on account of what they saw because of that witness. So Christ sheds light here on the way our walk with him, our relationship to sin and the world, our personal holiness as followers of Jesus Christ has a very real impact on the lives of others. So serious a matter is this, that Jesus pronounces a woe. He pronounces a woe on the one through whom temptations come. He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now these little ones in this context probably has in view not just children, but those young in the Lord, babes in the faith, those who are more vulnerable and impressionable in the things of God. Matthew and Mark both have Jesus saying, these little ones who believe in me. So young disciples are especially Christ's concern in this passage. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have walked with the Lord for, for many years, consider this. This room right now today is full of little ones in the Lord. Whatever their age, whatever their physical, natural age, this room is full of little ones in the Lord who are looking to you. They are learning from you. 
Whether you realize it or not, they are learning. They are observing your life. They are silently taking notes. They are formulating a vision from what they witness in your life about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. We don't want to make them stumble. We don't want to make them stumble. A millstone was a large a cylindrical stone used to grind uh, wheat or flour. Uh, sometimes they were so large, think six or eight feet in diameter, uh, that you, you needed to hitch a donkey to it to drive it in circles around the room. Uh, they had holes in the middle of them. So if you imagine a rope being hooked through that, almost as if it was this gigantic pendant, and then hung around your neck. Jesus says that it would be better for that to happen and you to be thrown into the sea. A graphic way of depicting certain death than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. You see the gravity here? You see the gravity of the warning. Well, with that Warning, now comes the exhortation, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. Here is Christ's explanation of how you can avoid this, of how you can avoid being a stumbling block in the lives of others, how you can avoid finding yourself in a position where it would be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the heart of the sea. You pay attention to yourself. How do you help point others to faith in Jesus Christ? How do you encourage others to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind? Turn your attention inward. Look to your own spiritual condition. Deal with the sin in your own life. Repent of remaining sin. Quit tolerating whatever besetting sin it is that you have allowed to, to be that feature in your life. Wake up from your slumber. Stop telling yourself, well, it doesn't matter. It's not affecting anyone. It won't hurt anyone else. That isn't true, beloved. It isn't true. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The writer of the Hebrews says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Here's one of the ways you can do that. Here's one of the ways that you can give yourself in obedience to that passage by keeping a close watch on your life. When Paul was exhorting uh, a young man named Timothy, about how he could care well for the flock that the Lord had given him to shepherd, uh, Paul said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, it's the same message. Pay attention to yourselves. Dear ones, are you paying attention to yourself today? 
the vitality and the fruitfulness of Timothy's ministry was, was bound up, at least in part, in his attention to his own life. Uh, faithful ministry, and I'm not just talking about pulpit ministry, I'm talking about the work of the ministry to which all of us have been called as God's people. That does not just mean knowing God's word. It doesn't just mean knowing the truth. It doesn't just require being a good scholar in the scriptures. It doesn't only mean saying truthful things. It means letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means watching your life and your doctrine. Both are necessary. Pay attention to yourselves. Well, now we, we, we move from dealing with our own sin to the sin of others. And with that comes two difficult directives. First, continuing in verse three. It says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. What a sharp word that is in our ears, isn't it? It means to warn by instructing. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Jesus paints a picture here where your brother is caught in a transgression. Perhaps he has sinned against you. Perhaps for whatever reason you come to discover that he is stuck in a pattern of sin. I wonder what your instinct is as you think about this hypothetical situation. What is the inclination of your heart? What do you say to yourself? Do you think, well, I don't, I don't want to meddle. I don't want to get too involved here. This is none of my business. Yes, it is, says Jesus. Yes, it is, says the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your first responsibility and the Lord to go to your brother. You go to him. You don't go to other people. You don't engage in whisperings or gossip or backbiting. You don't speculate with anyone else. You go directly to your brother and you tell him his fault. You and him alone. Matthew 18 and verse 15. You go to him and you do so in a spirit of love and honesty and gentleness for the good of his soul. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. We will do anything we can to avoid this. We will do anything we can to avoid doing what the scripture says so plainly we must do. In this regard, we will go to the pastor and we will tell him about it. Maybe someone else can deal with it. We will vent to others or share things in the guise of a prayer request. We'll tell our friends, you know, I'm really concerned about so-and-so. We will stew and complain to ourselves. Anything but going directly to the person caught in sin. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus says that if your brother sins, you should go to him. You should go directly to him and you should rebuke him. You should rebuke and admonish and teach and warn as the occasion requires. Now, why should we do this? Apart from the the fact the Bible tells us to. One, your brother's spiritual welfare is your concern. Your brother's spiritual welfare is your concern. We do not walk the path of discipleship alone. We don't do it in isolation. We mustn't think of our, of our faith in, in privatized terms. It's not the main point of this text, but it's, it's worth drawing out the fact that you should expect brothers and sisters in the Lord to come to you from time to time in this way. God's will for you is your sanctification. Now, he, he uses many means to bring that about. He, he, he uses many means to bring about his good purposes in our life, but one of them is this, and we confess this in our, in our membership covenant, that we, will, that we pledge ourselves to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. And so in light of that, I I want to encourage you today to think about whether you have positioned yourself so that that can happen. So that you can be faithful, on the one hand, in this respect, in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you, but also so that your brothers and sisters in the congregation have this kind of access to your life, to be able to minister to you, to be able to serve you in this kind of way, to spur you on in godliness. Is that the case in your life? If it isn't, I I, I would ask you to, to prayerfully consider what needs to change so that it would be the case, so that you can move in that direction. Paul talks about Timothy in, first, or in Philippians 2 and verse 19. Uh, he, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul makes a very important connection here when he says that there's no one quite like Timothy who is genuinely concerned for the spiritual welfare of the church. And then he says that everyone else seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection that he's making? What are the interests of Jesus Christ? They're Timothy's interests. Put better, Timothy's interests are the interests of Jesus Christ. The spiritual welfare of the saints. That is precisely what Timothy has given himself over to. So we are to go to one another 
out of loving concern for their spiritual welfare. We don't go to them because this is easy. It's not easy. We don't go to them because this is fun. This isn't fun. If you enjoy doing this sort of thing, you've got it all wrong. Your spirit and your approach isn't right. Proverbs 28, 23 says, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. He who flatters with his tongue is looking to avoid the issue. They're saying, ah, you know, you're doing great. Everything looks good. Just keep on trucking the way you are. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor. The favor and the fruit of obedience in this kind of ministry comes afterwards. It's hard in the middle of it. It's difficult. It's challenging. Now, there's an important complementary truth that follows here in verse three. And if he repents, forgive him. So, hear me here. The picture in this passage isn't one where the body of Christ takes up this attitude of censoriousness, where you, you are going around and you're throwing spiritual hand grenades and then you run and you duck for cover, never to say anything else. Again, our desire is repentance. Our desire is a change of mind, a new perspective, a new direction, an, an inward turning from, from sin and an, an embrace of all that is good and pleasing in the sight of God and where that occurs, where uh, repentance is expressed, you must forgive. You must forgive, which leads to healing. It leads to reconciliation. There is a, a, a spirit of grace that is to pervade the community of faith. Our goal in rebuke is not to tear down. It is to build up. The aim of rebuke isn't mere chastisement, but reconciliation, where relationships have been broken. You want to gain your brother, is how Matthew 18 points it, uh, puts it. Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have gained your brother. Hallelujah. Praise God for a brother gained. Notice also, though, that this is a conditional command. If he repents, forgive him. It's actually what we call a third-class conditional statement, meaning if he repents, this may or may not happen, but if, if he does, forgive him. Forgiveness is conditioned or predicated on repentance. Now, we have all seen uh, television, courtroom, dramas, uh, situations where people have given victim impact statements and, in which they, they declare that they unilaterally forgive someone, an offender, that they have forgiven without the confession of sin, or repentance, or forgiveness ever having been sought. 
Years ago, there was a preacher at a Martha's Vineyard church service where President Clinton was in attendance. This was right after the Oklahoma City bombings. Uh, The preacher that day announced that it was the duty of every Christian to forgive Timothy McVeigh, who had just murdered 168 civilians. He said, can each of you look at a picture of Timothy McVeigh and forgive him? And then he went on to say, I have, and I invite you to do the same. In 1997, Michael Carneal, a 14-year-old boy, took the lives of three high school girls who had been gathered together in a prayer circle. Before their funerals had even happened, some of their fellow students hung a large banner that read, We forgive you, Mike. So how should we understand things like this in light of the teaching of this text? Well, the Bible speaks in two primary ways about forgiveness. The first is what we might describe as attitudinal in nature, attitudinal forgiveness. This is a spirit of readiness to forgive, one where you are ready to extend forgiveness when the offender repents. And this really deals primarily with the vertical dimension of your relationship with God. You see this, for example, in the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's something very important to, to notice about that prayer, and that is this. There is confession and repentance on the part of the one praying to the Father. The plea here is for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. God, we have sinned against you. And then there follows this understanding that we will mirror God's forgiveness towards those who have sinned against us in the same way. Not universally or unilaterally, but when they come seeking forgiveness. And so you seek by God's grace, with God's help to maintain a gracious disposition, a willingness to forgive all that ask forgiveness. You don't harden your heart against those who might have offended you. You don't cultivate a root of bitterness within. You're not seething on the inside. You don't spend time nursing old wounds. You still seek to love your enemies. You still seek to do good to those who hate you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. Your desire, your prayer is to extend forgiveness as soon as the offending party forgives or repents. Your attitude is such that you are prepared, you're, you're willing, you're, you're waiting to forgive. And the second is what we might call transactional forgiveness. And this is where two parties actually have the privilege of seeking and extending forgiveness. This is real, actual, biblical forgiveness. One where the, the one who has sinned repents and the one who has been sinned against forgives. And this is what Jesus says we must do when a brother repents, forgive him. It means you, you make the conscious 
determination not to hold that sin against the other. You no longer treat your brother or your sister as someone who is indebted to you. It isn't about what you feel. This is not about your emotions. You are determining to be merciful just as God in Christ has been merciful to you. But it does require repentance for forgiveness to be granted. Now, for those who wonder if this is really true, consider this first of all, that God does not forgive the unrepentant. Repent, therefore, the book of Acts says, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God forgives. He's a forgiving God, but he forgives the repentant sinner. Are we to think that we are more gracious than God? Many Christians have spent years of their lives feeling like they have done something wrong because they have been taught that they should extend forgiveness unconditionally, universally, and unilaterally without it ever being sought, without sin ever having been confessed, and then they wonder why there isn't any real healing why there's no healing in the relationship. The breach still remains and and often the person who has been, been sinned against begins to take on guilt. They assume they've done something wrong because they, they can't quite seem to put it away. They can't seem to, to let go. This is the irony and the, the rotten fruit of unconditional forgiveness. It leads so often to bitterness and to confusion, and to resentment. This passage helps explain the the problem with that approach. You forgive the repentant believer. Some will say, well, uh, what about Luke 23, where Jesus is hanging from the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that unconditional, unilateral forgiveness. No, it isn't. One, we don't know specifically who he was praying for. Uh, Was he praying for all onlookers who were present there that day? Was he praying for the Romans? Was he praying for the Jews? Were they all saved apart from faith and repentance? Certainly not. The better understanding is to see Jesus' prayer here as a petition that the Father would bring those who had crucified him to a place of repentance, that they might know true pardon from sin. And we know that at least one centurion had an astonishing revelation that day. When Jesus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. We also know that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached to the Jews, and he specifically addresses those who had crucified the Lord in that sermon. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, 
this Jesus whom you crucified. And the Bible tells us that when Peter spoke those words, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, what did Peter say there? Did, did he say, man, I've got good news for you. You've already been unilaterally forgiven. No, he said this, repent, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Church, the truth is that unconditional forgiveness actually does violence to the gospel. It undermines the justice of God. You heard from Romans 12 this morning. This is Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Sin is costly. Forgiveness is costly too. It costs the shed blood of Christ to achieve our pardon on the cross. Now what, is, what does Paul say we should, we should do when um, our enemies, those who have sinned against us, are unwilling to come to terms of peace, unwilling to confess sin? We leave it to the wrath of God. We, we let God handle things. We entrust them to the God of justice. But then the challenge of this text isn't over. This time it is on the, the side of the, the offended party. What happens uh, when your brother uh, f- falls back into the same sin over and over again? What happens when he sins against you repeatedly? And the example here isn't just seven times, but seven times in the day. What do you do now? He came to you the first time and, you know, his humility and his contrition moved you. It moved you to, to grant forgiveness. His willingness to own his sin stirred your heart and you granted him forgiveness. But now what? Here we go again. Here we go again. It's the same thing over and over again, and he keeps coming to you over and over again, saying, I repent. Now, what's your instinct? Instead of seeing his confession and his repentance and his pleas for forgiveness as an indication of humility, instead of looking at uh, that initial uh, overture that you did with a, a tender heart, now you begin to develop a heart of bitterness and offense. Instead of bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things, you get cynical. You become jaded. You begin to scrutinize their sincerity and and you're loath to, to grant the forgiveness that you were willing to grant at the first. Well, dear ones, you realize Jesus chose this scenario on purpose, right? 
you realize that Jesus purposefully chose a, a scenario for us where the genuineness of the man's confession comes under scrutiny. Here he, he comes confessing again and you feel like you're being taken advantage of. Well, Jesus says it's not a matter of how you feel. It's not a matter of whether or not you feel moved with compassion it's not a matter of whether your heart is stirred. You must forgive. You should pray for a tender heart. You should pray for a compassionate heart. But you must make the choice. You must determine to forgive him seven times in the day. That number of fullness or, or completion. It is not like Jesus is saying, you know, but when he gets to that eighth time, then you can really have it. Let him have it. Then you can unleash on him. That is not what he is saying. This is just another way of saying forgive without limit. So there is another way of looking at someone, and let's make this personal. There is another way of looking at your husband or your wife or your child or your sibling or your friend or your coworker or a brother or sister in the Lord who comes to you repeatedly asking for forgiveness, instead of second-guessing the authenticity of their confession, you can choose to believe the best about them. You can look at them as a fellow sinner, someone just like you, in need of mercy and grace. If he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, some will say, well, I'll, I'll forgive them, but I won't let them get close to me again. Have you ever been tempted to say something like that? I'm not going to get hurt again. Brothers and sisters, that's not forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness brings two parties together. It reconciles them one to the other. It reestablishes fellowship where once it had been broken. This is all grounded in the gospel. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now what manifold mercies has the Lord shown you in Christ? What debts have been paid? by the shed blood of Christ. In your own account, how good has God been to you? Has he not canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands? Has he not set that aside, nailing it to the tree? So bound up in our knowledge of that, so bound up in our knowledge of this good news is the extension of forgiveness to others that Jesus is able to say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. How can he say that? Is he saying that, that we, we somehow merit our salvation by by? Uh, extending forgiveness to others, that salvation is contingent on a work on our part. Not at all. But an unforgiving heart is a sure sign of an unregenerate heart. A forgiving heart, though, 
A forgiving heart on the other side is one of the surest proofs that we are sons of God, that we know the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. There was a time in Peter's life when he was having a hard time understanding this. He had just heard this very teaching and he asked Christ, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus helped him with a parable. He told him a story about a king who came to settle accounts with his servants. And he came to to one of his servants who owed 10,000 talents, an almost unimaginable sum of money. Well, that man couldn't pay. So what happened? Out of sheer mercy, the king forgave him his debt. Well, that forgiven debtor then turned around to collect on a debt that was owed to him. It was a lot less, a lot less than the debt that he had owed to the king, but it was still a considerable amount of money. Now, when that debtor couldn't pay, the one who was forgiven does something Remarkable. He throws him into prison. And the king finds out about it. The king finds out about what had happened, and it says that in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Here's what Jesus says So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiven sinners forgive other sinners. That's Christ's bottom line here. Forgiveness is at the very heart of the gospel. And our willingness or unwillingness to forgive those who have sinned against against us is a witness to our own experience of that good news. Of the hope that it holds out to the world. It all begins with your own experience of God's grace and mercy toward you. You can, you can see, I think, why after hearing the, this, the, the apostles said to the Lord, uh, increase our faith. The idea here isn't, isn't so much help us believe. It's not that they don't believe God's word. It's more like help us be faithful people here. Help us live this way. Help us live in accordance with your word, in our behavior, in our conduct, in our way of life. And that's encouraging, isn't it? The disciples' example here is encouraging and instructive for us, especially as we think about this call landing in our own hearts to forgive others who have sinned against us. Why? Well, they immediately recognize their need for God's grace. Immediately, they see it. They, they realize this is no little thing to live in this way that Christ has commanded. What Jesus commands his disciples to do in verses three and four is a hard, hard thing. So we should pray. We should pray about such things. We should recognize the difficulty of this command, uh, confess our inability to perform it, in our own strength and go to the Lord, just like the apostles did, and plead for his help. Some of you are already thinking, uh, no doubt, uh, in in concrete ways about what this passage means for you today. 
about what it means for you personally and your relationships. This is a starting place for you to go to the Lord. At the same time, you see, you see the way Jesus recasts the nature of their need. What does he say? He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, children, can any of you see this? You can't see it, can you? That's a mustard seed in my hand. If you come to me later, I'll show it to you. A mustard seed is a tiny, tiny little thing. A mulberry tree, on the other hand, is a pretty considerable kind of tree. And it has a very extensive root system. It goes down deep and it spreads out wide. A mulberry tree can live for 600 years or more. So what is Jesus saying here? The disciples think that what they need is more faith. If we're going to live this way, if we're going to forgive others freely in the way that Christ is calling us to, we need a huge infusion of faith. What does Jesus say, though? It's not so much that you need tremendous amounts of faith, but simply to exercise what you already possess. It is not a matter of measure, but of possession. It's not the greatness of your faith, but the genuineness of it. To put it in simple terms, God has already given you the faith that you need to obey what he has commanded. That's good news for you. That's good news for each of you today, that it is good news for a church like ours. It is glorious news for sinners who sin against others and who find themselves sinned against, who know what it is to have broken relationships, to be hurt and offended by others and so on. The need of the hour, when you find yourself in that kind of situation, is not to sit around and wait till God pours out a miraculous provision of faith, but to do what he commands. God can take just a modicum of faith, just the tiniest measure, and do great things. Which brings us to verse seven. When the Lord does this, when he works these things in our midst, and the community of faith is marked by all that we have seen today, by that affectionate care and watchfulness over one another's lives. When we strive not to be a stumbling block to one another, and this practice of confession of sin and forgiveness of sin, that all becomes just commonplace in the fellowship of the saints. How should we think about that? Jesus gives us a short parable to help explain it, and it's one that's unique to to Luke. Verse 7, he says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him who, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Children, what's the answer? If there's a servant who has been out in the field and he's been 
slaving away, and he comes in, will a master tell that servant to come and recline at the table, uh, share a meal with me? No. He's the servant. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Again, uh, the answer here is presupposed. The desire of the master comes first. And then there is a third and final question that's posed. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now that might sound a little funny to us because in our cultural context, uh, we think of saying thank you as an expression of, of courtesy, of appreciation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in this cultural context, for a master to thank the servant for doing what was commanded would be to place the master in debt to the servant. So no, the master does not thank the servant for doing what was commanded. The servant is the one who is under obligation to the master. You see the principle. You also see the application. If an earthly master has the right to make these kinds of demands on his servants, how much more may the Lord require of us? How much more may he require of his servants whom he has purchased at the price of his own son? How much more is it the case that all of our love and service, and highest devotion is but only doing our duty to him. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The Apostle Paul says. Paul said, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. And it's the same, tr- uh, the same thing is true here. As it relates to our text, the things that we've seen together today, concern for the spiritual welfare of one another, the the brothers and sisters who are uh, in this room of worship today, the confession of sin, the extension of forgiveness, necessity is laid upon us. These are all ordinary parts of life. In the kingdom of God, necessity is laid upon us. We cannot boast in anything but the Lord, what the Lord has done in us. God, help us in this, amen? Let's go to him. Father, we we do pray for your help today. God, what, what a timely word this is for sinful men and women. God, we're so grateful for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we, we're so grateful for the way that you are so quick to forgive. Lord, that you have reconciled us to yourself through the Son, that you have brought us into fellowship and we know nearness with you. And yet we must confess that that is not always reflected in our dealings with others. 
God, we are not always faithful witnesses of the gospel in our dealings with brothers and sisters, even in the world. God, I pray that we would trust you, that we would walk in obedience. God, that what we know in Christ would be reflected with one another. I, I pray for healing where there are broken relationships. God, where sin has entered in and caused brokenness and pain and offense, I, I ask that you would work in the hearts of those who have been sinned against, that you would work in the hearts of those who have sinned. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon us how much we have been forgiven. Lord, help us in all of this. Help us, God, to have unity of mind, sympathy, tenderness, a humble mind. Lord, I pray that we would forgive as freely as we have been forgiven that you would get glory from our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.